This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is experimenting on the Word of the Lord. In the first half, Lawrence E. Corbridge shares his address, Stand Forever. Then in the second half, Jennifer B. Nielsen speaks on experiment and experience. Sister Corbridge and I are honored and so grateful to be with you here today. As part of an assignment I had as a general authority, I needed to read through a great deal of material antagonistic to the Church, the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There may not be anything out there that I haven't read. Since that assignment changed, I have not returned to wallow in that mire again. Reading that material always left me with a feeling of gloom. And one day that sense of darkness inspired me to write a partial response to all such antagonistic claims. I would like to share with you some of what I recorded that day. And although I wrote it for my own benefit, I hope it may help you as well. I wanted to give a different talk today. I wrote other talks, more entertaining, with more stories, more engaging than this one. But every time I wrote a new one, I came back and I was directed back to this one. The prophet Daniel said that in the last days shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and that kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It will stand forever. The question is, will you and I stand? Will you stand forever, or will you go away? And if you go, where will you go? When the Lord described the signs of His coming and the end of the world, when He described our day, He mentioned many things, including wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, and famines, pestilences, and earthquakes, and many other signs, including this one. For in those days, this day, there shall also arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect who are the elect according to the covenant. Now, I'm not sure of all that is implied with that qualification, if possible, they shall deceive the very elect. But I think it means at least everyone will be challenged in our day. Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. And one of the most prominent features of the vision of the tree of life is a great mist of darkness, that they who commenced in the path did lose their way and that they wandered off and were lost. There are many who deceive, and the spectrum of deception is broad. At one end, we meet those who attack the Restoration, the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. Next, we see those who believe in the Restoration but claim the Church is deficient and has gone astray. 
There are others who claim to believe in the Restoration but are disillusioned with doctrine that conflicts with shifting attitudes of our day. There are some without authority who claim to visions and visitations to right the ship and guide us to a higher path and prepare the Church for the end of the world. Others are deceived by false spirits. And then at the far end of the spectrum, we come to an entire universe of distractions. Never has there been a time with more information, misinformation, disinformation, more goods, gadgets, and games, more options, places to go, things to do and see, to occupy our time and attention away from the most important. And all of that and much more is disseminated instantaneously throughout the world through by electronic media. This is a day of deception. Truth enables us to see clearly because it is the knowledge of things as they really are, as they were and as they are to come. Knowledge is crucial to avoid deception and discern between truth and error. The Prophet Joseph said, Knowledge is necessary to life and godliness. Knowledge is revelation. Hear all ye brethren, he said. This grand key, knowledge is the power of God unto salvation. People say you should be true to your beliefs. And while that is true, you cannot be better than what you know. Most of us act based on our beliefs, especially what we believe to be in our own self-interest. The problem is we're sometimes wrong. Someone may believe in God and that pornography is wrong and yet still click on a site wrongly believing he'll be happier if he does or that he can't help but not click or it isn't hurting anyone else so it isn't all that bad. He's just wrong. Someone may believe it is wrong to lie and yet lie on occasion wrongly believing he'll be better off if the truth is not known. He's just wrong. Another may believe and even know that Jesus is the Christ, and still deny him not once but three times because of the mistaken belief that he would be better off appeasing the crowd. Peter wasn't evil. I'm not even sure that he was weak. I think he was just wrong. When you act badly, you may think you are bad when in truth you are usually mistaken. You're just wrong. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs. The challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That's the challenge. So how do we close that gap? How do we avoid deception? Begin by answering the primary questions. There are primary questions and there are secondary questions. Answer the primary questions first. Not all questions are equal, and not all truths are equal. The primary questions are the most important. Everything else is subordinate. There are only a few primary questions. I'll mention four of them. Is there a God who is our Father? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Was Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints the kingdom of God on earth? 
By contrast, the secondary questions are unending. They include questions about church history, polygamy, people of African descent, women in the priesthood, how the Book of Mormon was translated, the Pearl of Great Prize, DNA in the Book of Mormon, gay marriage, the different accounts of the first vision, and on and on and on and on. If you answer the primary questions, the secondary questions get answered too, or they pale in significance. And you can deal with things you understand and things you don't understand, things you agree with and things you don't agree with without jumping ship altogether. How can we know the answers? There are different methods of learning, including the scientific, academic, uh, uh, analytical, and divine methods. The divine method incorporates elements of the other three, but ultimately trumps everything else by tapping into the powers of heaven. All four methods are necessary to know the truth. They all begin the same way, with a question. Questions are important, especially the primary questions. The scientific method, we form a hypothesis framed in response to a question. Experimentation is then conducted to test the hypothesis. The results are then analyzed, conclusions are drawn that either confirm, disprove, or modify the hypothesis in which, the, in which event the process continues. Alma invites us to experiment upon his words. The Lord said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In regard to tithing, he said, Prove me now herewith, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Truth can be discovered by doing, which is faith. Experience plays a vital role in coming to know the truth. In the analytical method, That method is also important. It involves gathering, organizing, and weighing the evidence relevant to a question. Based on the weight of the evidence, conclusions are drawn as to what the truth may be. The Lord instructed Oliver Cowdery, saying, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed I would give it unto you when you took no thought, save it was to ask me. But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your own mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. Evidence and reason also play a role in preparing us to know the truth. The academic method involves, of course, study of the written word. Study as well is essential. Mormon said the word of God has a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people, how we think, than the sword which might be the very fear or threat of death, or for that matter, anything else. This is more powerful than anything else. It's more powerful than fear, addiction, pornography, or anything else. It stands to reason, therefore, that the Lord would say, treasure up in your minds continually the words of life. And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived.
The divine method incorporates the elements of the other methodologies, but ultimately trumps everything else because it taps into the powers of heaven. Ultimately, the things of God are made known by the Spirit of God, which is usually a still, small voice. The Lord said, God shall give unto you knowledge by his Holy Spirit, yea, by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul taught the men only know the things of men, and that the things of God are known by no man except by the Spirit of God. He said, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. We see that every day. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Of all the problems you encounter in this life, there is one that towers above them all and is the least understood. The worst of all human conditions in this life is not poverty, sickness, loneliness, abuse, or war, as awful as those conditions are. The worst of all human conditions is the most common, and it is to die. It is to die spiritually. It is to be separated from the presence and power of God. That's the worst. Conversely, the best of all human conditions in this life is not wealth, fame, prestige, good health, the honors of men, security, or dare I say it, even good grades. As wonderful as some of of those things are, the best of all human conditions is to be endowed with heavenly power. It is to be born again, to have the gift and companionship of the Holy Ghost, which is the source of knowledge, revelation, strength, clarity, love, joy, peace, hope, faith, and almost every other good thing. Jesus said, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, shall teach you all things. It is the power by which we may know the truth of all things. It will show us all things we should do. It is the fountain of living water that springs up unto eternal life. Although the voice of the Spirit is usually a still, small voice, it is nevertheless ever sure, penetrating, pervasive, edifying, and sustaining, so much so that the Lord said, And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world neither in the world to come. Pay whatever price you must pay. Bear whatever burden you must bear. Make whatever sacrifice you must make in order to get and keep in your life the spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. Everything depends on that. So what was the gloom I felt several years ago while reading antagonistic material? Some would say that gloom is the product of belief bias, which is the propensity to pick and choose only those things that accord with our assumptions and belief. 
The thought that everything one has believed and taught may be wrong, particularly with nothing better to take, it, take its place, is a gloomy and disturbing thought indeed. But the gloom I experienced as I listened to the dark choir of voices raised against the Prophet Joseph Smith and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, that gloom that came as I waded chest deep through the swamp of the secondary questions is different. That gloom is not belief bias, and it is not the fear of being in, in air. It is the absence of the Spirit of God. That's what it is. It is the condition of man when left unto himself. It is the gloom of darkness and the stupor of thought. The Lord said, And that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. That which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Revelation from the Spirit of God supersedes belief bias because it is not premised only on evidence. I have spent a lifetime seeking to hear and follow the word of the Lord. And the spirit associated with the dark voices that assailed the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the Restoration are not the spirit of light and truth. They are not the spirit of God. I don't know much, but I do know the voice of the Lord. And His voice is not in that dark choir, not at all in that choir. In stark contrast to the gloom and sickening stupor of thought that pervades the swamp of doubt is the spirit of light, intelligence, peace, and truth that attends the events and the glorious doctrine of the Restoration, especially the scriptures revealed to the world through the prophet Joseph Smith. Just read them and ask yourself and ask God if these are the words of deceit, delusion, or truth. There are some who are afraid the Church may not be true and spend their time and attention slogging through the swamp of the secondary questions. They mistakenly try to learn the truth by process of elimination, by eliminating every doubt. That is always a bad idea. It will never work. That approach only works in the game of Clue. Life, however, is not nearly as simple. There are unlimited claims and opinions leveled against the Church and the truth. Each time you track down an answer to any one antagonistic claim and look up, there is another one staring you in the face. I am not saying you have to put your head in the sand, but I am saying you can spend a lifetime 
desperately tracking down the answer to every claim leveled against the Church and never come to a knowledge of the most important truths. Answers to the primary questions do not come by answering the secondary questions. There are answers to the secondary questions, but you cannot prove a positive by disproving every negative. You cannot prove the Church is true by disproving every claim made against it. That will never work. It is a flawed strategy. Ultimately, there has to be affirmative proof. And with the things of God, affirmative proof finally and surely comes by revelation through the Spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. To his disciples, Jesus asked, Whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but thy Father which, are, which is in heaven. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Church of Jesus Christ is grounded on the rock of revelation, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are the Church. You and I are the Church. We must be grounded on the rock of revelation, and although we may not know the answer to every question, we must know the answers to the primary questions. And if so, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, and we will stand forever. Finally, Believe. Believe that with God all things are possible. We may all be taken back from time to time by the extraordinary, such as walking on water, multiplying bread and fish, raising the dead, translating gold plates with special lenses or a stone and a hat, and the visitation of angels. Some people are hard-pressed to believe extraordinary things. While it is understandable that we may be challenged by the extraordinary, we shouldn't be because ordinary things are actually more phenomenal. The most phenomenal occurrences of all time and eternity, the most amazing wonders, the most astounding developments are the most common and widely recognized. They include I am, you are, we are, and all that we perceive exists as well, from subatomic particles to the farthest reaches of the cosmos and everything in between, including all of the wonders of life. Is there anything greater than those ordinary realities? No. Nothing else even comes close. You can't begin to imagine, much less describe, anything greater than what already is. In light of what is, nothing else should surprise us. It should be easy to believe that with God all things are possible. The healing of the withered hand is not nearly as amazing 
as the existence of the hand in the first place. If it exists, it follows, it can certainly be fixed if it is broken. The greater event is not in its healing, but in its creation. More phenomenal than resurrection is birth. The greater wonder is not that life having once existed could come again, but that it ever exists at all. More amazing than the dead be raised is that we live at all. A silent heart that beats again is not nearly as amazing as the heart that beats within your breast right now. That one could see on a stone or, or through a special lens, the modern translation of ancient texts written on plates of gold is far less amazing than the human eye. The wonder is not what the human eye may see, rather that it sees anything at all. How can you believe in extraordinary things, such as angels and gold plates and your divine potential, easy? Just look around and believe. I don't know if pigs will ever sprout wings and fly, but if they do, flying pigs will never be nearly as amazing as the ordinary pig in the first place. I heard someone say recently, it's okay to have doubts. I wonder about that. The Lord said, look unto me in every thought. Doubt not. Fear not. I have a lot of questions. I don't have any doubts. There is a God in heaven who is our eternal Father. I know that by my experience, all of my experience. I know that by the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. I know it by study, and most surely I know it by the Spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Redeemer of the world. I know that by my experience, all of it. I know it by the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. I know it by study, and most surely I know it by the spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. Joseph Smith was a prophet of God who laid the foundation for the restoration of the kingdom of God. I know that by my experience. I know it by the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. I know it by study, and most surely I know it by the spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on earth. I know that by my experience, all of it. I know it by the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. I know it by study, and most surely I know it by the spirit and power of the Holy Ghost. And with that, I know everything I need to know to stand forever. May we stand on the rock of revelation, particularly in regard to the primary questions, and if so, we will stand forever and never go away. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Experimenting on the Word of the Lord. We've just heard from Lawrence E. Corbridge, after the break, we'll return with Jennifer B. Nielsen for Experiment and Experience. 
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is experimenting on the Word of the Lord. Next is Jennifer B. Nielsen, BYU professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the time of this address, titled Experiment and Experience. I have to tell you how much I love working and living in a college town. I get to see so many wonderful students. When I was, uh, I don't know, I think Rob was about five, it was a few years back, we were out shopping and I met a bunch of students as as frequently happens. And it was great because he finally looked up at me kind of wide-eyed and said, Mom, every place we go, people know you. Are you famous? (laughs) And of course I said, yes. (laughs) And I may not be famous, but I am so blessed to work with so many fantastic colleagues and friends and to have so many great students. They inspire me in many ways. Uh, Many of my students are here. My Chem 285 class actually meets every day at noon. So today, they get a short one-day reprieve from amino acids and proteins. But they should be suspicious (laughs) that I'm going to work something in from today's devotional on tomorrow's quiz. So pay attention. That's right. As a brand new chemistry graduate student at the University of California, San Diego, my faculty advisor, Dr. Charlie Perrin, had asked me to do the very relatively easy task of replicating the experiments from a student who was just leaving our lab. The results from that project were going to be published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. It's a top journal in my field. When I finished the experiments, my results were the opposite of what the original findings were. I repeated that experiment several times. Again, it didn't match. Uh, I began to panic. (laughs) My failure to replicate felt like evidence that I was terrible in the lab. I took my results to my advisor, and he was surprised. He suggested a series of modified molecules in which I could repeat similar experiments. I worked hard. I purified materials. I read literature techniques. I did a mountain of experiments. I talked to my my favorite friend in chemistry, Julie, about ideas. And at the end of a long day, I would come home and worry out loud to my husband, Dan. And in the end, what we learned is that the original results were inaccurate. And eventually, we published the paper in the same journal, retracting the first claim, proposing a new conclusion. And in fact, the title changed from the original. It was symmetries of hydrogen bond to asymmetries of hydrogen bond. (laughs) And Charlie Perrin became one of my heroes. He valued uh, learning truth over protecting his reputation. Every time I entered one of his, uh, his office with new ideas or new results, he welcomed them. He felt that an unexpected or wrong result taught us something. And I learned so much from this experience, which has shaped me over the years, including that ice cream soothes my soul on a long day. But what I really learned is that this experiments are here to help us gain truth. We can become stronger from struggles. Um, Meaningful results actually do require a lot of time and effort. And the best, that working with others is essential. I believe that life experiences, which might also be called experiments, are meant to enable us to grow and become Christ-like. Theory is not enough. Experimenting is where theory meets reality. Doctrine remains theory in our minds until we show our belief in the doctrine by acting. Amulek teaches this to the poor among the Zoramites. In Alma 34.4, 4, 
Yea, even that ye would have so much faith as even to plant the word in your hearts, that ye may try the experiment of its goodness. The word they should plant is the doctrine of the atonement. Look at verse 8. I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people. And he shall atone for the sins of the world, for the Lord God hath spoken it. And then the experiment he exhorts them to try is verses 17 through 29. To exercise faith unto repentance, to pray always and everywhere, to take care of the needy and the naked, to visit the sick and the afflicted, and to share their substance. Experiments can also teach us whether a theory explains reality or needs to be revised or discarded. When my son Rob graduated from diapers at age two, he got his first pair of briefs emblazoned with the Spider-Man logo. And excited, he asked, does this mean I can climb walls now? And he tested his theory, and he learned he couldn't climb walls. But he confirmed a number of times he could bounce off of them. So good experiments make learning concrete, and it teaches us truth. I'm seeing firsthand the value of experiments in my chemistry education research in Uganda. Last year, Makerere University, which at 40,000 students is the largest university in East Africa, and considered the most prestigious in Uganda, had just two students declare chemistry as their major, and the year before that there was only one. What could be the reason for this? And here's a clue. Students in Uganda are required to study four to six years of chemistry before they finish secondary school. Yet few of them have opportunities to learn chemistry principles through hands-on experience, through experimentation. Many secondary schools lack the adequate equipment and supplies for chemistry labs and the facilities to handle the resulting lab waste. So for most students, chemistry is pure theory. It's rote memorization. And consequently, many of the students come to see it's just too difficult and it's too pointless. The need I see from working there the past few summers is for students to experience science hands-on to make the chemistry concepts come alive and become meaningful. And my research team facilitates workshops designed to help secondary school teachers incorporate simple water-based experiments into their class and labs. The emphasis is on exploration and experience. It's on discovery and development. The word experiment and experience have the same Latin root. They come from the word experior. It means to, re- to gain knowledge by repeated trials. So let's think about that word trial for a minute. Because for most of us, that represents the difficult, even horrendous experiences we are having in life. But in the scientific world, trial has positive connotations. It refers to repeating experiments in order to learn something valuable. A clinical trial could be used, for example, to study the effect of a new drug or a medical procedure. The word trial, then, in science is not associated with just difficult parts of the experiment. It is the experiment. Interestingly, the same Latin root is in the word peritus or tested, which is related to the word peril, reminding us that there are risks in experiments. We often don't find the results we would like. There are sometimes unintended consequences, like an explosion in the lab. And yet it is through experimental trials that scientists collect enough data points to see patterns in their work and reveal truths about their world. It's actually a sufficient number of trials that lends power to an experiment. And power in this context is not talking about how important or valuable a clinical trial is or its results are. Power is referring to statistical power. It's derived from the number of observations. And one of the factors that gives confidence to an experiment's results. 
Francis Collins, who is the current director of the National Institutes of Health, said, when we fund a clinical trial, are we making sure that it has sufficient power that it will enroll enough participants to produce a meaningful result? Small trials with uncertain endpoints may cost less than larger, well-designed trials, but may not teach us what we need to know. Curiously, a range of experimental trials can also increase the possibility of uh, more successful results. In the book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, the authors Brown, Rodiger, and McDaniel described an experiment in which 8- and 12-year-olds were randomly assigned into two groups. So in the control group, blindfolded students practiced throwing beanbags at a target that was three feet away. In the treatment group, blindfolded kids practiced tossing beanbags at two feet and four feet targets. And then both groups were given repeated feedback on their attempts. The students practiced for a couple of weeks. Then they were all tested on how well they could throw a beanbag three feet. And surprisingly, the treatment group that had worked on the two feet, two foot and the four foot range, but never on the three foot range, were much more likely to hit the bullseye accurately than the control group who had only practiced that one perfect distance, suggesting that practicing a range of distances really did prepare the students better to hit the mark at testing time. The Lord's plan, the plan of salvation, provides opportunities for learning in our temporal and spiritual selves, not simply for the sake of knowing, but for the ability of doing and becoming from a multitude of experiences. You might even describe what the adversary put forth where we would always be forced to obey as only one impoverished experience. Satan's version of the plan had neither power nor range. I personally am grateful for the opportunity to practice, to continually improve, and learn what I'm capable of and where I need to change. Honestly, I don't want the last time I cut someone off in traffic to be the single piece of evidence of who I am. Power comes when we see all of our experiences which are often trials in both senses of the word, simply as more opportunities to practice, to practice faith, patience, resilience, love, service, forgiveness. Sure, I can forgive when it is my sisters, but can I forgive when it's my brother? I mean, I have six. When I am tired, when I am angry, when I am busy, when I am wronged. Every experience in life can be when another trial run giving us power to discover the truth about our lives and how we can change to become more like our Savior. One of my favorite missionary companions in Brazil was a convert who had joined the church at age 16. Sister Adriana had grown up in a family who owned a bar. And she had started drinking at an early age. She told me she was addicted and giving up alcohol was the hardest thing she had ever done. When we taught investigators the word of wisdom, I could certainly share my witness of its truth, but she would share about craving alcohol and then testify that she would rather feel the Spirit and she couldn't do both. She had felt redemption from the Savior's Atonement in this part of her life, and she could testify with power. That's not to say that you have to have every experience in order to find truth and fulfill your potential. You don't have to experiment with things that draw you away from God. Thankfully, our own experiences are not the only ones we have to rely on. This is one of the reasons we have family and gospel stories and pass down wisdom from generation to generation. If I have seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants, was the acknowledgment of Sir Isaac Newton. In fact, when we designed our experiments in Uganda, we didn't have to test everything. We were able to structure those workshops using the literature on science education and teacher development workshops in the United States. And likewise, when I listened to my companion's testimony of the Word of Wisdom, it confirmed my own beliefs without having me 
experience what she went through. Now, I've got the saying, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. This is attributed to James Garfield, the 20th president of the United States. And that sure feels true sometimes. But we do have a superior way of looking at life's experiences that turn them from trials in the purely hardship sense to trials in the cumulative knowledge sense. Christ doesn't just give us options. He gives us the power to make good choices, the power to repent and begin again after bad choices, the power to identify truths from our experiences. President Howard W. Hunter taught, If our lives and our faith are centered on Jesus Christ and his restored gospel, nothing can ever go permanently wrong. So with the atonement, my mistakes do not become permanent, but instead are one more trial run as I'm learning how to become like him. And when we find ourselves in a horrible experience, either through our own bad choices or the decisions of others, we can learn to turn tragedy into victory by using the atonement. Remember in Doctrine and Covenants 122, 1 through 7, where Joseph Smith is in Liberty Jail. And the Lord describes all the ways in which the world can turn and has against Joseph and then counsels, Know thou, my son, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. We certainly can learn important skills and strengthen our faith by coming out of a trial even stronger than we entered. Even if it's a hard experience, we can choose to see it as an opportunity of living and experimenting. Christ himself showed us the importance of obtaining a body and experiencing life. I mean, why couldn't Christ just study the plan of salvation, learn what his role was in that atonement? Why couldn't he just know all things? He came to earth. He experienced the rough waves in a ship and the calming power of the priesthood during the storm. He experienced love and kindness from his mother and father, the gentleness of a woman washing his feet with her tears, the gratitude of a leper whom he healed, and the grief of friends when Lazarus died. He experienced the tenderness of Mary weeping for him when she did not find him in the tomb. He experienced Gethsemane, the cross, and cruelty. It wasn't enough to know theoretically. He experienced the reality of mortality that he might know and understand what we experience. He suffered and died for us that we might experiment and live. And I share my witness of Jesus Christ and his atonement. We will be resurrected with our bodies after this life. With his help, we can repent. We can change and become the person God wants us to be. So how do we truly learn from our experiments? The kind of learning that brings us closer to Christ. The Reverend Thomas Bayes, the patron saint of statisticians, proposed a method for updating prior knowledge with newer experimental results. If my daily focus is to be a good driver and a kind person, a single incident of distractedly cutting someone off shouldn't have sufficient weight to convince me I'm a bad driver. But it is a valuable data point, challenging me to renew my efforts to be more conscientious in my driving and also to react charitably when others cut me off. However, if in my search for truth I find patterns in my behavior that do not fit with my view of myself, that evidence needs to be given more weight as I look to make necessary changes. Professor Carol Dweck at Stanford University has spent 25 years researching how people's self-concept matters in how they react to disappointment and failure and what they do with results they don't like. In one of her seminal studies, she gave visual IQ tests to fifth graders and then randomly assigned the feedback each was given. One treatment group was told, 
they had performed well and were praised for their intelligence. A second treatment group was told they had performed well and were praised for their hard work. Next, the children were given opportunities to practice different types of questions. The students praised for effort overwhelmingly picked harder problems than the students praised for being smart. Then Dweck's teams gave the fifth graders an eighth grade IQ test, which they all bombed. But the kids praised for effort performed better than those praised for intelligence. And this makes sense in retrospect, I suppose, given how the different groups had practiced. But then Dweck's team did something especially clever. They readministered the same level of fifth grade test the children had all aced earlier. Again, the effort praised children outperformed the intelligence praised kids. But here's the surprising thing. The kids praised for being smart actually did worse than they had in the first round of testing. It was almost as if they had grown dumber. Once they no longer believed they were smart, they weren't. Dweck has proposed there are two basic mindsets, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. The assumption of those with a growth mindset is that intelligence, creativity, artistic ability, and other traits are flexible, not frozen, and they can be increased by continual practice. The assumption of those with a fixed mindset is that the traits are inherent and cannot be changed. And the problem with the fixed mindset is the belief that an outcome is somehow a comment on a person's very nature. If I cut someone off in traffic, it not only says I'm a bad driver, but that I'm a bad person. If I fail that exam, it means I'm not intelligent. In contrast, a person with a growth mindset sees mistakes and failures for just these data points that can be used as Bayes proposed to update prior knowledge in order to improve. Our daughter Abby is a talented runner. When she was a freshman in high school, she became very focused on her performance and showing how fast she was. And she feared failing because it would mean she wasn't talented. One particularly hot fall afternoon, she chose not to run in a meet because it just seemed too hard for her to run well. In contrast, by her senior year, she used each meet, regardless of circumstances, to learn how she could improve. She scored in every race. She ended up as her team's most consistent runner, placing better at nearly every meet and running in the state championship. She demonstrated a shift from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And this is the good news, which Dweck's subsequent research showed, is that you can learn to have a growth mindset and see yourself more as this work in progress that will improve with time and effort. And I've seen many of you in my classes develop more of a growth mindset while learning chemistry. The really good news in Old English, Godspiel or Gospel, is that Christ's atonement is very real and we are also not fixed, but can flex and grow. Now, my own life experiments have been possible because of the people with whom I'm going to use the word collaborate. For years, my family motto has been, Nielsen's do hard things. You can imagine our kids have not always been fond of the family motto. <laughs> However, we were rescued so many times our first summer in Africa that we actually changed our motto to, Nielsen's do hard things with help from God and others. <laughs> At one point, I was traveling in rural Uganda to meet the organizer of a women's co-op. It was raining hard. The streets were not paved. And by the time we arrived at the house, my friend Kristen and I were muddy. I really hesitated, though, to take off my shoes to enter the house. They were actually fairly expensive walking sandals. I had bought them specifically because I knew I'd be walking a lot in Africa that summer. So with some anxiety, I left them on the front porch. 
When I stepped in the house, I was astonished to see a paper on the refrigerator that said, As Sisters in Zion. And Chris and I actually started singing. And this lilting voice joined us from the other room. And then I noticed a picture of the First Presidency of the church on the wall. We were in this little slice of heaven. Our new friend greeted us with um, a very traditional, gracious Ugandan greetings. They say, You are welcome. And then you say, Thank you. It's kind of the opposite of what we do in the U.S. This woman was in the Makono Award, and her husband was the bishop. And she told us her story. We met her kids. It was a glorious hour. And then we exited the house, and my shoes were gone. And I will admit that my soul sank, and all those lovely feelings fled. And then from around the corner of the house came a neighbor holding my clean shoes. I mean, it must have taken her the whole hour to get the caked-on mud off. And she simply said, You are welcome. And I felt the love of God and the goodness of people. And those shoes only mattered right then because they had given me the experience of seeing the kindness of strangers and realizing again that any hard thing I have done really has come through the help of God and others. And I love the ways that you serve and connect each other. I see you do this all the time. Earlier this semester, one of my students came to me distraught over failing a midterm. And we discussed several ways she might improve, taking the practice exam as if it were real, uh, forming a study group, teaching the principles to others, trying more problems. She listened. She adjusted. She aced the next midterm. Last week in office hours, a different student expressed her dismay at a midterm. And the first student overheard her and immediately invited the discouraged classmate to join her, join her in her study group, and learn from all of their collective experience. Love for mothers is essential when we are not having the experience we want. And there will be many times we will be having an experience we don't want. So what else can we do then? May I suggest, with apologies to Crosby, Steeles, and Nash, if you can't be with the experience you love, Honey, love the experience you're with. (laughs) Do-do-do. Rabbi Ronnie Kahana had a stroke to his brainstem in 2011. The effect of the stroke was slow enough that he was aware as his body gradually became paralyzed, starting from his legs just just below his eyes. It's a condition known as locked-in syndrome. Family and friends to learn to communicate by saying the alphabet out loud and then having him blink when they get to the right letter and there will spell out any message. His reaction to this experience was incredible. He spent hours pondering the beauty of God and life, wondering that he could experience such an exceptional state. He said at night his mind would soar and he would be in motion, swirling and twirling above the ground. By blinking his eyes, he wrote letters and sermons sharing his experience and declared, I want you to know that this too is heilige, holy in Yiddish. I am in a broken place, but there is holy work to be done. His willingness to search for truths in this trial helped him transcend his misery. His daughter said in a TED Med talk that the family cocooned him in love, and he imagined moving his fingers while his loving family physically moved them in therapy, and then his body rekindled. Slowly he began to feel electrical sensations in his arms. He eventually regained enough feeling to be able to breathe on his own and then to talk with his own voice. Every day he witnessed another miracle. His body developed like a baby, but he observed it with all the experience of a 57-year-old mind and felt wonder and gratitude. He used his new understanding of truth to grow and was remarkably not afraid. The truth set him free. 
Our life experiments can be tools to learn truth and to make changes if we are not afraid. The pioneer chemist Marie Curie believed nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. My daughter, Katie, is in a class studying Mormon women this semester and shared with me the story of another pioneer, Jean Rio Griffiths Baker, who, like many converts from England, had to face an ocean of unknowns to travel to the U.S. to be with the saints. In 1851, before she set out to cross the plains to Utah, she wrote in her journal, The future will most likely be an account of trials, difficulties, and privations, such as at present I have no idea of, so as to be able to provide against them. But, as you are aware, I am not one to go through the world with my eyes shut. And Paul teaches us to approach life experiences. Using the Savior's Atonement in 2 Timothy 1.7, it is one of my favorite scriptures because of the three gifts from God that are specifically mentioned. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Our earth life. For us, this university life is a unique place for exploration, experience, and discovery. Let's use our life experiments with Christ's help to turn theory into reality. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Experimenting on the Word of the Lord with thoughts from Lawrence E. Corbridge and Jennifer B. Nielsen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.